0: Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popovich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co host here, Dave Popovich. How you doing, buddy? I'm terrific, Faisal. How about you?
1: Well, it's a very interesting session today because um, we're not in the studio together. Uh, you're in Calgary. I'm in Edmonton uh, meeting clients this week and uh, took a little time standing here and coming back later on this afternoon. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be very interesting to have a conversation with you from two different cities. I can tell you the sentiment in Edmonton uh, is probably a little bit different than Calgary. And I'll tell you that the whole, the whole feeling in, in the city. Now, I came into town and there was a there was a hockey game going on. People were having a great time. I'm in, the, in what's called the ICE district, and they were all talking about, you know, how this pandemic is causing a problem, but they're all talking about, well, what's next? What's, what's next when it comes to the economy? What's next when it comes to taxation? I'm, I'm surprised to hear more and more people in Edmonton talking about taxation, not only from, a, from a, uh, a federal level because of the new government, but taxation, like they're hearing sales tax, we don't hear that in Calgary. We're hearing that up here in Edmonton, which is quite interesting. That they're they're bantering around the conversation that maybe there'll be a sales tax up here. I was I was quite surprised. In fact, I almost had to go hide back in my hotel room when I heard that.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. We often talk about um, about Alberta and how it's different, and sometimes how we feel things differently than the rest of the country does. But it's re- it's interesting to know even between cities, right? Some of the concerns conversations are also different, even within the same province. So that, uh, that is an interesting bit of an insight. But listen, we got to talk a little bit about, um, well, we're gonna talk a lot about taxes today. So we've got Jamie Golenbeck joining us. He's gonna go through some of the, uh, what he expects could be some uh, potential tax changes in the future, given the uh, the the new government or after the election. And uh, we'll also talk about some some um, planning, some t- tax tip for year end to, to do some planning and make sure you're taking advantage of what's available to you. Um, Faisal, the the markets this week have been been interesting. Um, We got some inflation data this week. And, of course, I would say over the past two, three, four months, concern has been growing around how persistent the inflation is going to be. And it appears that with all the supply chain issues that we're facing, you've got energy prices skyrocketing. Uh, there's still lots of potential stimulus to come in government spending that things are looking a little bit more persistent. You know, the US data that we got this week was a tad higher, not out of the realm of sort of the the reasonable range, but it was certainly a tad higher than what was expected. And I think the market is now starting to expect that this is going to be with us a little bit longer than maybe what we were thinking about two, three, four months ago. So so two things on that point, Dave.
1: Um, One was Um, The whole conversation, let's say three months ago, six months ago, was transitory versus permanent inflation. Uh, And so what we've been hearing about is, well, where's this transitory inflation? I don't think any central banker came out and said transitory is less than one year. I don't think they ever said that. So I think that there's one thing that we have to put in the back of our mind that transitory could be two years. Supply chain and, and the glut that we have there, it could take two years to to sort itself out and that will then calm down inflation. So central bankers are saying if this is a transitory piece of the inflation rate, then we don't want to raise interest rates so much that we're going to, you know, slow down the economy while we have this problem and when all the supply comes out, you're going to have you're going to have even possibly deflation and that, that's a that's a bigger problem to deal with when you're a central banker. So that's one part. The the second part when it comes to to the whole inflation conversation is now we're starting to see what's going to be a bit more sticky and what's more permanent. Um, yeah, we're seeing grocery stores with higher costs. Yes, that's part of the, the, uh, the basket of goods for, for inflation. But when we're looking at wages, and we're seeing how many companies are having a tough time hiring people, that they're giving incentives, that they're raising their, their, you know, their levels of income to these individuals, that it's going to be passed on to the consumer. What's surprising in all of that has been happening, the bond market hasn't reacted as much when it comes to the inflation issue, what are your thoughts about that? When it comes to the bond market, you are a bond guy, so
0: what do you think? Yeah, well, it has been interesting to watch. Uh, let's just use the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield as sort of the benchmark for this, and we did see it um, uh, over the past sort of 10 days push higher, and then it's backed off a little bit. Listen, I, I think that we're in a um, we're in a phase where interest rates are, are likely to start moving higher, and I'm not talking about the the central bank overnight rates that we often talk about, I think the, the market is likely to start pricing in higher interest rates here, but it'll be fits and starts, right? It's like anything else. There's not a straight line up. We're going to, you know, it'll push up, it'll pull back, push up, it'll pull back. That's that's the trend we're in. But I do think that the, um, um, the, the trend right now is probably to a higher interest rate, which ultimately, Faisal, is a good thing, right? Um, we don't like to see in the bond markets interest rate shocks where it just goes from you know one to two percent in a very short period of time that's bad those kind of shocks are, are bad but over time as savers right one of the one of the groups that have been punished through this whole period of time with low interest rates are the savers people in retirement because you just can't get enough yield or interest from the bonds that you hold so i think if we can get a slow steady march higher which the central banks would want to see if we can have inflation starting to mitigate. Your point is well made, I think, about, um, about the timeline of it, right? So we will negotiate as market participants the timeline over which um, some of these transitory issues, supply chain problems mitigate themselves. But here's one, here's one back at you. Um, you know, we're hearing more and more the word stagflation being brought up which I find very interesting. Now, just to define that, stagflation is an economic condition where we have rising prices, rising inflation, and we have stagnant growth. And what I find interesting about that term coming out now is even with any of the revisions we've seen just this past week in terms of growth because of some of the supply chain problems, we're still seeing global growth north of uh, of 4%. That is a long way away from stagnant growth. Right. So that the idea of the 70s keep coming back up. And I just don't see the conditions that exist for stagflation or, or something that would mirror the 70s. Yeah.
1: And I think you're, you're, you're bang on with that, Dave. I think when people talk about what happened in the 70s, there was also recessionary numbers coming in. Yeah. 74, 75, as an example, those years where that was, I think, the first time that our Canadian dollar uh, in a long time was above par. Right. right. So we saw that there was a recession with higher interest rates, and that caused the, 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 uh, the terminology of stagflation. That's not happening here. We're not going to double-digit interest rates. Right. Now, that being said, going from 1% to 3% is a huge magnitude, and that will cause a shock if it happened like overnight. Right. Uh, but, but when we look at the words of stagflation, as of right now, we don't see that in the data points. But I, what I find very interesting is whenever there is rumor of interest rates going up, Certain uh, pockets of the media will come out and start using that word just to get the, the conversation going. And it, it's very interesting where no one's still talking about we're at global growth of four to five percent. We have got majority of the world that doesn't have their vaccine rates at the same as, West, as, as, as us in Canada or the United States is where majority of the world is in population. And so, you know, there's still some long term, a lot of growth in that area that, that no one's really talking about.
0: You know, yeah, good point. There's a number of sort of fine balancing acts that we're... And and this happens every crisis, right, as we move back into a state of normalization. But, you know, you think about the supply chains and think about the energy impact. I mean, on the one hand, we see energy prices moving higher, and that'll be positive, obviously, for uh, Alberta and Alberta-based oil and gas companies and so on and so forth. Most of the world are consumer nations, right? And so as a consumer nation, um, higher... Either natural gas or you know gas prices, oil prices, you know creates an inflationary problem. But it's been very interesting to watch the uh, sort of the negotiations back and forth between OPEC and their analysis of what this is going to do. Um, you know they're kind of holding their their own. They're holding the course saying, listen, our our supply program in in terms of increasing supply seems uh, reasonable, given the current environment. Whether they're right or wrong, you know, could create some volatility. Higher prices, we've seen $100 forecasts in oil, and I've seen $70 uh, forecasts for oil. A lot of it is going to be dependent upon how quickly that demand comes back and the willingness to bring supply back on from principally Russia and, uh, and Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, Faisal, we've got uh, a new government that looks like an old government. There's been uh, a bunch of tax stuff talked about, and taxes... You know um are a very sensitive topic for um, everybody um and there's a lot of concern around taxes given that you know we spent a lot of money going through the pandemic and so on and so forth and people are genuinely concerned about what this is going to look like going forward and into the future um and so we want to try to shed some light on on what the range of uh changes may be what's been discussed kind of the probabilities of what might happen and nobody uh, better to help us do that than Jamie Golenbeek, who is the Managing uh, Director of Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC. Jamie, we want to welcome you back to the show. Oh, pleasure to come back. All right. So I think I did a decent job of sort of setting up at least the fears that we hear from people. You know, what could, what what's in store for us given uh, that we're through the election now and we've got some idea of what the new old government looks like and uh, and. Uh, what has been discussed on the various platforms? So maybe we just open it up to you. Love to get your thoughts on uh, on on the topics of interest and sort of the probabilities of what you think may happen.
2: Yeah, so it's an interesting scenario. Of course, we have the same government pretty much as we had before. It's still a minority liberal government. Of course, they're going to need another party, right, to vote with them on any major measures, which makes some of the measures by, for example, the NDP more relevant than they would have otherwise been, uh, you know, absent this scenario. So um, we look at both platforms. We look at the liberal platform. We look uh, also at the NDP platform. And uh, we say, you know, what measures in each of those platforms could we be seeing in the next few weeks? Uh, You know, people are talking about months, but we could have an economic statement in November and sometimes we've seen uh, major tax announcements, uh, not not often, but occasionally uh, in an economic statement rather than waiting for a budget uh, sort of in, in 2022. So, I mean, look, the Liberals had a number of uh, interesting proposals. They had, you know, they uh, something called the First Home Tax Savings Account, which uh, allows you to set aside $40,000 from RSPs and and take it out tax-free, kind of the benefits of both the RSP and TFSA. So we might be, see the introduction of that. Uh, you know, they're, they're talking about Taxing banks, uh, which we know about for excess profits. We've seen that as well. That's been, uh, you know, somewhat controversial. Uh, You know, a minimum tax uh, for individuals of 15%, although we already have an AMT, so we're not really sure on what that's going to accomplish. Um, um, But I think, uh, you know, there's nothing major, really. There's a few other small things on the liberal side. What people are most worried about, which I'm sure everyone here has talked about, is a couple of the proposals, maybe a few of them from the NDP. Uh, the big one, of course, that we've talked about before on the program is, uh, of course, the capital gains inclusion rate, which is at 50%. Could it go up to 75%? Certainly, that's what the NDP wanted. Uh, you know, could, could they do that? You know, absolutely they could. Uh, that's certainly on the table. Uh, they've talked about a wealth tax as well for you know individuals with, say, over 10 million dollars of wealth. I think that's less likely because, after all, it is very complicated. There are very few countries in the world that still have a wealth tax. And then you get issues of valuation. How do you value the private company, the family farm, the business, the artwork, you know, things like that? Um so, you know, stocks you can value, real estate you can generally value. But, you know, what about the other stuff, which becomes complicated? So I don't think we're going to see a wealth tax, although you never know. And, of course, the final one, which I think is I hopefully is off the table, is the principal residence uh, exemption. Well, There are a lot of rumors about that, and that wasn't in the platform. But, you know, could the government ever bring in a, a tax to principal residence? And, uh, you know, my view is that they probably wouldn't do that politically. Uh, because that would be remembered at the polls the next time. So I don't see that. So of all the th- proposals out there right now, in terms of you know what could affect an investor, um, I'm most worried about the capital gains inclusion rate, and that's something we've talked about
3: before.
1: Jimmy, when you look at what's the opportunity in regards to housing, this was one of the, one of the platforms that I think all three parties, all three major parties talked about in the campaign. The liberals did come out with this uh, tax program or tax savings program for our savings account towards, helping for a down payment. Uh, we also heard about the flipping of homes and uh, foreign buying and so forth. So housing was a big piece during the, uh, during the election campaign. Many of the individuals who are retired or transitioning to retirement have children who are concerned about the affordability of them purchasing a, purchasing a home. Many of them have also said, you know, maybe I should come in and help out my, my child and, uh, and go from there. So when you look at some of these um, campaign promises, where do you see um, the benefit for a person being able to afford a home? Considering Vancouver, Toronto, for example, it's been astronomical in price versus other parts of the, uh, the country. And then also, uh, when you look at um, these uh, individuals passing money on to their children, are there ways that people should think about this from a tax perspective? Because I think this might be we might be triggering a lot more tax to pay for housing uh, than we ever have before.
2: We know housing has been a huge issue, and we've seen it addressed in all the campaigns, certainly on the Liberal campaign it's been addressed, and in particular um, uh, you know, with their incentive. Now, you know, saving $40,000 towards the first home, they do the calculations and how they came up with the 40,000, but really, you know, in a city like Toronto or Vancouver, the 40,000 is not going to help you buy your first home. It might help you buy that first micro condo, uh, but it's not going to buy your first home. So I'm not sure how helpful that program is going to be, although we'll see. Maybe you combine that with the first time home buyers, uh, plan and the RSP and the TFSA. And maybe you can come up with a couple hundred thousand dollars for that down payment. But, uh, We'll see. I'm not, I'm not overly excited about that. Again, the foreign limit, you know, in terms of foreign buyers, again, how many, we hear stories about it, certainly in Vancouver and Toronto, but how big a market is that really? And that tends to be at the higher end as well. So I'm not sure that's going to make a big difference. Um, In terms of housing, you know, things are certainly expensive in in the big markets, and and, and parents are often encouraged to, or at least they're interested in helping children uh, get that down payment. That's very, very common. Um, We see it all the time. Uh, At the same time, parents have to be careful as well, right? Because... Giving the money to the kid in most provinces, if they put it into a matrimonial home, if something happens with that relationship, that money is gone, at least half of it is gone. And that's the biggest concern. So we have worked with clients uh, in conjunction with their lawyers. To see that we can protect uh, those assets. So, for example, if a parent does want to help out uh, a child with the purchase of a home with the down payment, uh, sometimes what we can do is we can structure it such as that the parent takes a mortgage. Uh, you know, they don't charge interest on the mortgage because why would they? At the end of the day, it's just intercompany money, and the problem is that of course that the interest is you know non-deductible by the kids and taxable to the parents, so it's a win-lose-lose scenario there, right? Um, but you know, do an interest-free mortgage so that if Something happens to the uh, relationship later on and the parents wish they could simply uh, collapse, call the mortgage, get the money out of the equity of the house um, before the house is sold. So that's something that can be looked at. And um, that's a strategy. But I think, yes, you're absolutely right. I think that the parents helping, uh, you know, the next generation buy. Uh, it will be something we'll see more and more of. And also, I think you know in some cities like Toronto, for example, where I live, renting is becoming a lot more you know palatable. Uh, it depends on what you're renting and the prices, right? But that being said, you know, it may be more of a rental society at least in the short term uh, unless housing prices uh, cool or at least uh, more bear more resemblance to uh, you know an income income levels.
1: Well, we're down to about a minute left before we have to go for commercial break. Um, when we we talk about these types of issues, Dave, there are, Concerns for people as they transition to retirement. There are concerns for uh, multiple reasons. One, they want to take care of themselves, make sure that they're protected. They want to make sure that their family is protected. So that would include aging parents and themselves. That sandwich generation that we've been we've been talking about for so long. And so the idea of basically protecting yourself in both areas. Now, you're, you're one of them. I'm one of them. They're going to be taking care of our parents and our children as, as both parties age. Um, and so when you look at what our clients are talking about, we have less than a minute now. Um, what are one of the one biggest issues they see from a tax perspective when they're helping their family members? I think that uh, people are worried about how to be able to give wealth
2: uh, to the next generation uh on a tax effective manner right whether it's gifting or doing some other types of strategies using income splitting and things like that so that certainly is a a big
0: concern um we're joined by jamie golembeck who is the uh, managing director of tax and estate planning at cibc and jamie you've done a terrific job in that first segment of giving us an idea of what the uh the new old government's going to do and some of the potential complications given it's a minority and that um you know the uh the um uh, ndp have some specific policies that could be, uh, could be of concern. Um, one question we didn't get to that I, I do get often is tax on income. So can you maybe just opine a little bit about what you think may or may not happen with respect to income taxes and um, either create or alleviate some of the fears that our viewers and listeners have?
2: Yeah, well, I think the fears are warranted, quite honestly. I mean, uh, we're very high tax rates now, depending on your province, of course, but uh, our tax rates are over 50% at the high-end margin in at least uh, 7 out of the 10 provinces currently. And I don't see the current government reducing the tax rates, you know, giving everything that's going on. If anything, they could go up, certainly for the higher-income earners. And we didn't see this in the Liberal, although we did see this a number of years ago when the Liberals introduced that very high-income bracket for income over 215000 dollars or so federally. Uh, but remember, in the NDP platform and again we do have a minority government and we do need the NDP um, certainly uh, to be on board uh, potentially with some of the voting in the fall but in the NDP platform they did want to raise the top rate by two more percentage points right Uh, you know up to 35 percent from 33 percent on the federal side and that could put top rates you know as high as 56 percent depending on the province that you live in in Canada so you know I I don't think rates are coming down anytime soon uh, at least not with this government and I wouldn't be surprised if you know know the government decides to have the wealthy or the high income uh, pay what they call their fair share pay a little bit more we've seen this already uh, with the luxury tax right that's coming on the on the votes and on the cars and the air sorry the airplanes and uh, so we'll see what happens there with the uh, with the increased tax rates but i think it's a concern for sure
1: jamie one other concern that does come up is old age security clawbacks and potential changes to old age security now this was not talked about in the campaign but there are fears out there that they might change the program when it comes to this entitlement. One is lowering the amount of, of income that you need in order to get a clawback started. right now it's around 79 thousand dollars or so and then that might get dropped down. that would actually save some money for them. Uh, is that does that go count, counterintuitive to what this government considers to be middle income earners or do you think that's a that, that an old age security clawback range would be dropped? Uh, from 79,000 or something lower.
2: Yeah, look, I think it could be dropped. I mean, we haven't seen anything on this from a policy officially uh, from the Liberals or really from anyone else at this point. But, you know, there is certainly a debate among economists uh, or whatever. Of what is the purpose of old uh, age security? It's to provide security, right? If you are making $75,000 a year in retirement, uh, depending on your lifestyle, uh, do you need additional security from the government, right? Coming from a sort of a general fund, general revenue. It's not like the CPP, which you've paid into, and it's a contributory plan, and it's like a pension plan that you've, you know, really saved for. Uh, this is really just funded out of general revenue. So the question is, like, is the OAS clawback uh, floor to high. In other words, should it be brought lower? Uh, should uh, people that making you know lower amounts of income continue to enjoy this as government? Or should we reserve that money for people who really need it? Uh, really lower income seniors and things like that. So, um, you know, it's an interesting debate. Uh, I think that a lot of seniors get very vocal when it comes to OAS Clawback. Uh, it's actually interesting. There's uh, less than 5% um, less than 5% of um, uh, of seniors are subject to clawback.
0: Yet we hear from them all the time <laughs> because it's very vocal. Let's let's chat about Jamie. Let's talk a little bit about yeah, a little bit about year-end tax planning. Um, Faisal, sorry to cut you off there. Uh, I think that we're moving into the last quarter here, and um, like you often tell us every year, uh, you, you know, once we get through the end of the year, you can't do any further tax planning. So maybe give us a, a, a list of the things that you think those people are that Canadians, particularly those retiring should be thinking about here as we move into the end of the year.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the most common one, of course, we want to remind anyone who's turning 71 this year that this is your final kick at the can with the RSP. So you've got to wrap up that RSP before the end of the year. You could cash it out, that would be a pretty silly thing to do because you'd have to pay tax on the full amount. Uh, most people, generally, of course, take the RSP and they roll it over to a RIF, where you keep all the same investments, and then every year after the year you set it up, you're required to take out a minimum amount uh, every year, starting at around five or six percent, and every year that goes up a little bit. You have to Withdraw that, but of course that can be withdrawn in in kind. You don't have to actually liquidate any of your investment portfolio. So the first thing, of course, is to make sure you're on top of that now October, November, so you're not waiting till last minute to roll that RSP over to the RIF. Um, the other thing is that of course if you are uh, turning 71 and you still have RSP room, you might want to make that final contribution. But while you can still have an RSP, you don't have that normal 60 days that you would normally have until next year to make an RSP contribution if you turn 71 this year. So you might want to think and make that final contribution before the end of the year. That being said, if you have a younger spouse or partner, uh, you still can contribute to, of course, a spousal RSP beyond 71 if you have earned income. And let's just remind everyone that earned income we think of often as salary employees. But earned income is also anyone who's self-employed, self-employment business income. But it also includes rental income. So if you've got a rental property, you rent out your basement, you're reporting that as rental income on your return. That's earned income, which would allow you to create RSP room and therefore make an RSP contribution even beyond 71, if you've got that younger spouse or partner uh, that can have that spousal RSP.
1: The conversation that I get, Jamie, is, let's take as much money as we can out of the rsp or the riff right now because if i was to pass away in alberta top tax rate 48 percent let's try to do that whenever i've crunched the numbers jamie it's come back nine times out of ten it's better to defer 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 in your opinion and let's set the record because you're the tax expert here what's what are your thoughts in regards to the, the idea of pulling money out early to save on the on the upon death or deferring uh, as long as you can
2: yeah, it rarely makes sense to take out money you don't need early. If you need the money to live on, go for it, right? Take the money out, enjoy your retirement, do that traveling, buy that condo, you know, do those things you want to do. But if you're taking it out purely as a tax play, to me, it makes little if not any sense at all, to take the money out before you actually need it. That being said, we have seen scenarios where it does make sense. So for example, you really are in the lowest tax bracket, you have no other income, um, and you want to take out that $40,000 a year to stay in the lowest tax bracket. I think that can make Makes some sense, right? You're taking out, you know, forty thousand dollars a year, bringing yourself in the lowest tax bracket, paying, you know, twenty five percent tax on that money, rather than on death paying forty eight percent. But it also depends on your age, right? If someone, you know, is is only sixty five and they have a life expectancy of thirty years in some cases, right? Uh, Do you really want to prepay taxes even at twenty five versus, you know, forty eight percent twenty five years in advance? That being said, if you're in your seventies or eighties and you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness and You've only got a few years to live. Uh, that would be a scenario where, yeah, maybe it does make sense to take some money out earlier so you can pay tax at lower rates
1: rather than having it taxed at the highest rate in the year of death. And these are all the kind of questions that come up, Dave, when uh, when it comes to planning for the future. Big questions about how do you bulletproof your retirement. We always talk about that the number one or single item expense, that's probably going to be the largest every year in your retirement, is taxes so tax management and
0: tax strategies is very important you know Faisal, um we're in a very interesting period we've talked about taxes we've talked about markets today i want to talk a little bit about lifestyle because you know when we talk about what's the investment thesis with inflation and uh and supply chains that's one thing the question is how do those things actually affect people day to day outside of their portfolios and one of the concerns, clearly, um, that should be on everybody's radar with these, you know, economic issues we're talking about, inflation, supply chain, coming into the holiday season, is oh boy, am I actually going to be able to, you know, is there is there a Grinch that's going to steal Christmas here called supply chain or something like that? And I'm having a lot of a lot of conversations with clients about this, about maybe we need to be planning a little bit earlier this year thinking about what Christmas is going to look like so that it's not a terrible experience where you're rushing around, you can't get the things that you want and so on and so forth. There's a real impact on people's lifestyle of these these issues we talk about every day.
1: Yeah, and it's it's not only the Christmas gifts, but it's the Christmas experience, including some travel and so forth. I think the the one piece that you and I have been talking about recently is let's get our list and let's buy our stuff now because... By the time we get our our goods that we're looking for, you know, it's it's going to, going to be Christmas because there's there's such a backlog on stuff. People are, don't don't think like I do. Like, I buy your Christmas gift the year before on Boxing Day. Like, it's just a lot easier. Yeah. It's so much easier to do it that way. So, um, yeah, get, I already have your Which gift. Which is an empty bag. Well, that's why it's called... <laughs> it's an empty bag. Come on. Yeah, well, it's something. It's a thought that counts, Dave, right? So, so, so yeah. when you... It's a thought in the bag, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: So, when you look at... When you look at the the issue of, of this whole supply chain and i don't think people really understand it right. unless you're involved in it yes we've seen and, and i've had in cases clients of ours talk to me saying my grocery bill is up 25 right yeah i can believe that i can totally believe yep. that and that's them you know still clipping coupons and going to different uh, locations to save money here and there that's not just buying at one location they're also seeing less and less goods in the grocery store. So definitely in that area of people's lifestyle, their, their food at home is um, a concern. They're also seeing it on the eating out or getting food delivered to them. They see the cost going up there or less choice. So that part of their experience, so if you're thinking of going out for dinner uh, during the Christmas uh, time, you might have some problems there. There might be some issues uh, with with supply chain. There might be issues with service because businesses are having a hard time having staff on board and uh, the supply of goods. It's a challenging time. So that's going to have an impact. But there's parts of of the retirement inflation rate, and I'm putting that in air quotes for a reason, is because no one really tracks um, the inflation rate for people who are in retirement, because right. it's very unique and different. It's not the same 700 plus goods in the basket as the central bankers in Canada, United States look at. It's, um, it's, a, it's a bit different. And so we look at the lifestyle, um, pandemic, people realize it was, it was really cheap to stay at home. As we open up more and more of the economy, as we travel more, I have a feeling that if we increase the travel uh, in 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 Western Canada or even in sorry in North America, you're going to start seeing prices to to on flights and hotels jack up. They're going to go up. You're going to see that. It's going to be a big impact. So look at uh, at at those types of issues when it comes to a lifestyle.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and I think you 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 hit on the nail on the head. This idea of lifestyle and experience, and you know what we're talking about in our household is like, we just talked about this last night actually with the kids, that the idea is to try to find uh, what I said, my kids are 13 and 15, but I still expect them to write uh, letters to Santa, even though they generally know who Santa is at this point. But uh, but I said, (laughs) I I want a heartfelt letter about what you would really like, but it's it's going to be one thing. So it's not going to be necessarily material. I want to hear a little bit about the experience that the family experience that you want to have. And so I think that it's going, to be, it's going to be interesting. What I'm hoping that people don't do is leave it too long because I think there will be, for the goods, and certain, for the goods that you want to buy, there's going to be some problems going into this year. And so I would hate to you know, think you, uh, you know, you're, somebody special wants a gift that you can't get your hands on because you waited too long. So I think that the experience planning around Christmas this year, for us, is changing already. Right? It is moving away from product to experience. But you've also correctly identified that if that experience means um, a special meal or something, that there could be you know, inflation in that. It might be paying more for that. So what does the budget look like? right? What do we want to do and how do we want to allocate that budget to have the finest experience possible? Now, we just happen to be talking about Christmas given the time here. But this notion of experience and achievable experience, you and I have been talking about for a long time. So whether we're facing inflationary pressures in the short term or this is three years from now, and there isn't inflationary pressure, it's still the same thing, isn't it? It's about thinking about how to use your wealth in a way that gets you the the best experience that you can have in whatever it might be, whether it's family or travel or, or goods or whatever the case may be.
1: So I think when, when, when clients of ours sit down with us and talk about you know, what, what kind of lifestyle they wanna have, what kind of experiences yeah. they wanna have in their retirement, most people when they first come to us Dave will say I need X dollars of income or they we go through their lifestyle costs and we say This is how much you roughly spend Wh- right. in times like this what I love to talk about is what I call the min and the max spending category I'd like to show our clients, you know if because of inflation because you want to be you know uh, Have different experiences. You may want to be creative and spend a bit more this year and not mm-hmm. as much next year have a range set in in your, in your retirement planning that you, you know, don't stick to the same dollars because it's not always the case. You can have a maximum amount of money you can spend per year, which will basically exhaust all of your savings at age 90, let's say, um, or you can have a minimum amount uh, you can spend that will leave everything behind given assumed rate of return in the portfolio. But if you fall within that range, I call that freedom within boundaries. And in times like this, you know, if I got to spend an extra 10, 15, 20% more for an experience during the holidays with my family, that's, I I don't, I don't want to feel like I have to go back and think about, oh, should I spend it? Should I not? Right. You know, Dave, I've I've seen you in in previous years, not during the pandemic, but before, you know, when, when you spend on more than your budget, quote unquote, you'll reduce the next month just to stay even. And that, that can have an impact. I've, I've said, you know, let's stay in the ranges. And so when we look at our lifestyles individually, I hope that when we realize there's inflation, there is experiences, there's potential tax increases that we talked about in today's show. Yep. These are all additional costs. So how does that range fit for you? So you're not worried about, oh my God, inflation's up 6%. That means I won't have enough money in my, in my life because I'm gonna use 6% as the inflation rate for the rest of my life. It's just not possible that way. So let's, let's
0: have a minimum and a maximum you can spend so you can have the freedom within the boundaries. Yeah, and and that's uh, I think that's a really important point. I had a conversation this week with um with a couple and they were talking about this idea of being on a on a budget, right? The word fixed budget really really bothered them. When we translated that idea into a plan, right, a financial plan, and there's a range of spending and some years you spend more and some years you spend less, the question is are you staying on plan? then it was really interesting to see that change take place in them. Oh, yeah, okay. And now I don't feel like I'm getting an allowance like I'm a 13-year-old again, right? Now it's, right, I've got some freedom to do what I want to do and experience the things I want to experience, but I get that there's some limitations. Right? We've got to balance this thing out over time. So plan versus budget seem to be a very, very important talking point and differentiation for them.
1: This is why I think when, when people go through retirement, they realize how vulnerable they are. Uh, how vulnerable they are with regards to their financial situation because they have quite a few objectives and goals they want to achieve and they have a fixed amount of, of assets. We use the words fixed income for retirees. I'm on a fixed income. You know, I'm on a, on, a, on a set amount of income. Well, everybody with a salary is on a fixed income as well. So I don't like right. that terminology. I think we need to shift the terminology to I'm on a fixed income or uh, sorry, not fixing, I'm gonna fix asset pool that I would have income from, and, but I have multiple goals. I have, I have lifestyle goals, I, have, I wanna take care of my kids, my parents, I wanna make sure that I, I can take care of myself as I age. All these different issues come up and I'm very vulnerable in, in this time. That, that causes a lot of anxiety and stress which is why we go back to that. You've got a whole bunch of ranges to live within. A financial yeah. plan is just a calculation. A retirement plan is a map for your future. So you can kind of decide how which road you want to take. It's, it's, a, it's a lot more open. I think that's, that's the big difference. And it still surprises me that 48% of Canadians over the age of 60 have a retirement plan. That means 52% don't. That really concerns me, Dave.
0: Yeah, well, it it increases that vulnerability, like you said. Like the the um, the plan is about um, you know it's about data and uh, and putting yourself in a position of control. And we know that we see when people feel out of control as they make this move into retirement, that's where that vulnerability uh, tends to really come from. So uh, we listen. We encourage everybody to do that. But listen, have a good Christmas too. So get ahead of this whole thing, right, from a lifestyle perspective. Yeah get ahead of what's happening right now we know that there are problems uh, but those problems can be overcome through a little bit of advanced thinking
1: exactly and i think this is the time where you can actually sit down with your retirement specialist your team that you're working with and ask for the ranges of possibilities what's the minimum what's the maximum What's the flexibility you can have in this? That's the key thing. And we're going to talk about what options you have at our next seminar on Tuesday, October the 19th, 7 p.m. Live online, go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Well,
0: thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. On behalf of Faisal myself, Dave, we look forward to chatting with you next week.